We're live at the Pastor Mike Drop podcast, and I'm so excited that you have uh, decided to tune in and join us today. Today, our distinguished panel of pastors and ministers, uh, we are going to be going on a deep dive in a discussion in 1 Timothy from the New Testament and the Song of Solomon from the Old Testament, a saucy poem about love and romance, and 1 Timothy covers all sorts of controversial issues. We're getting a lot of questions this week on church leadership, about the role of women in church leadership, about what the vision is of the church and what it is we're supposed to be. So pull up a chair and grab a Bible and join us for the Pastor Mike Drop podcast today. Welcome to the podcast, and and you've uh, heard the introduction. Let's dive right in. Co-host Emily, how are you? How are you? I'm good. Let's introduce our wonderful panel. Yes, we have Pastor Pat from Hope Waukee back. Hi, Pat. Hello. How are things in Waukee? Things are going great. We are excited for a new church year as we start uh, yeah. here this next week with Rally Sunday, and yeah. ready, excited to see all the family and friends come back. Yeah, it's going to be great. We're gearing up here. And at every campus as well. Also, Jamie Richards, Young Adult Revive Minister. Hi, Jamie. Hello. Thanks for having me back today. It's really fun to be here. Yeah. Glad you're back. You guys yeah. have picked a good week <laughs> to be on. We're, <laughs> saucy. We really do have some saucy, controversial, okay. exciting stuff to cover. And I say that with, uh, you know, some reverence for God's Word, because God's Word's going to point us in the right direction, even though it so frequently gets misinterpreted, misapplied. Let's try to help people with that so we can bring some clarity um, and some, uh, yeah, some truth uh, to what it is that people hear the Bible says. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. Let's do it. Let's uh, ask some questions. Let's start with some questions. Why don't we just jump right in? Anybody got any questions? Oh, yeah. No, should have saw that coming. Okay. What is Song of Solomon all about? What is it doing in the Bible? And what does it tell us about God's view on his gifts of love, marriage, and sex? Uh, Song of Solomon, also called Song of Songs, because that's the first verse. It says... This is Solomon, that's King Solomon, son of David, uh, the wise one. We talked about him last week as, as a potential author of Ecclesiastes. So now Solomon is writing a poem. We think it's probably Solomon. I, I should say, I think it's probably Solomon. I, a lot of scholars are on my team on that. There's others who are like, no, it couldn't be Solomon for all sorts of other reasons. But to me, it's a lot of times the simplest interpretation is the most honest and the truest. And if it says, this is Solomon's Song of Songs, maybe we just take the Bible's word for it. Uh, and regardless of it's Solomon or somebody else writing this poem, it's still God's word. It's still in the Bible. And it is a song of songs, which is a way of saying it's the best song. It is, it is the, it'd be like the poem of poems, the, the baseball team of baseball teams. It, it is the best. It is the top uh, and more wonderful than any other. And then it begins. This is where it gets a little, let's call it saucy, right? Kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. How fragrant your cologne. Your name is like, like its spreading fragrance. No wonder all the women, young women love you. Take me with you. Come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. What is this doing in the Bible? I mean, <laughs> at a certain point, you're like, wait a minute. This is scripture. This is God's word. And it is. There is this um, piety, this, this, this uh, kind of slant on all things religious and God's word that assumes that God is against romance and love and sex and marriage and all these things, or that he has such a very, very narrow view of these things. Mm. Song of Songs, Song of Solomon just pushes back on that. It says God not only is for love and romance, God invented it. God's the author of these things. God's the one who, it's, <laughs> just, just, I can't say this slow enough or, or, or clearly enough, it's a gift. It's a gift. Now there are boundaries around gifts, and and there there are ways to hurt hurt use gifts or apply gifts in a way that's hurtful, or even abusive or painful, and and we see that in a fallen world, we see that in a sinful world. But Song of Solomon is this refreshing reminder that love is this amazing gift. Even by the end of Song of Solomon, uh, it says, it's it's it's. It raises up such passion in us. It's more important than death. It, 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 it conjures up all these emotions. It's, it's stunning. It grabs us. It's, it's worth pursuing. And it's not only Solomon writing this about this young woman who loves him. 
it's also this young woman. In fact, she has more lines than he does. It, it's her narration about how she's seeking and trying to find him. And uh, other Bible interpreters will say things like, well, this isn't an, uh, a metaphor or an allegory, or it, it means you know God and, and his people, and it's the love affair that God has with his people. And that's certainly true. And we find that language in the New Testament between Christ and his bride. Uh, Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. But archaeologically, uh, in the last century plus, all sorts of new texts have been found that show similar kinds of love poems that say this is God's gift. So, yeah, this is a gift inside of boundaries, but it is a gift that God wants us to share uh, and get glimpses of heaven. Love is, love is wonderful. I love the word that you used, used refreshing, that this is a refreshing reminder. And it makes me think of the fruits of the spirit that we see in the New Testament. What's the very first one that's the fruit of God's spirit? It's love. And that's not restricted to love of friends and family. (laughs) Like (laughs) that's a love that uh, is all encompassing in all sorts of relationships and can be expressed in different ways with good boundaries, right? Like love bombing is not a healthy expression of love, so on and so forth. But this is a refreshing example of God's gift of love. I think they're word pictures, aren't they, of of what love looks like. Uh, I always loved when, um, you know, for years taught the pre-marriage class and 1,200 couples, and you'd always see uh, everybody start blushing when I'd start opening up the scriptures to Song of Songs and say, come, come, my lover, and start rapping it. Um, and, And it would be this reminder of that, you know, not only is this, you know, written primarily 80, 20, probably of, from a women's perspective of, of what it looks like to be courted or to court somebody. So it brings that voice in, which is pretty special, but it also just get, continues to give you kind of word pictures of God's love, unfailing love for us and something transcendent that's coming down that we get to experience. But it's also something a little bit larger than what we usually try to envision love to be. It starts to encompass greater things. Um, and that oneness and that vulnerability um, that is found in marriage. I mean, we always kind of blush at first love or courtship when sure. those first couples or that first few months of courting happen. But then you have those 50-year-olds that live into that. Uh, and sometimes it makes you uncomfortable because they're truly one. And this is really about becoming one. And it's a beautiful reminder of that. It is. It Two quick things just to kind of put put a bow on this for now. <laughs> One is that if you're reading the imagery, as you said, uh, Pat, it, it's poetry. And as you said, Jamie, you know, picking up on that word refreshing, as you read this refreshing poetry and you're reading it, you go, is that saying what I think it might be saying? Yes. And probably more. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Bible is going all in on this and saying that this is this full gift, this complete gift. And the second thing is, is I think we've just inspired a lot of our podcast listeners to do the Old Testament reading yeah. <laughs> uh, for this week. Uh, as I read it again this past week, I was like, well, yeah, it, there's blushing and that kind of part of it too, but that's part of human nature. Right. But there's also this, what a gift, what a wonderful thing to have the gift of love to be able to share with another human being. And uh, that is about as good as life can get this side of heaven. That is a beautiful glimpse of heaven. And we shouldn't ever minimize God's gifts or, or, you know, blush so much from them that we can't, if the church doesn't talk about these things, who will in in a healthy uh, and and life-giving way? I think Mm -hmm. it's important that we do that. Yeah. There's this great story that years ago, as a church, we did a reading of the Bible in the worship center. Yes. And we had volunteers and some staff led, (laughs) and there is still chatter to this day that Pastor Ben ended up having to be the reader of some of these (laughs) Song of Songs scriptures into the microphone, into the worship center, and that will make you blush, (laughs) you know? But it's biblical. It's there. We had a reader once at church who read something like this, and after he said, he, he backed up and he goes... Don't come after me. I'm just the reader. I'm, I'm just the messenger. I'm not, I'm not the one who's bringing this really kind of very vivid, very, very yes. blunt kind mm-hmm. of poetry uh, to you. I'm, I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. That's good. But oh. It's all about the presentation. And, yeah. and when you yeah. talked about saucy, I kept thinking as a fisherman, there's a, a, a bait called saucy swimmers. Oh, there is. And, and it's about oh, no. the presentation, you know? Yes. And so this gives you a presentation of what love can look like in, in all of its fullness. Yeah. That's right. So when you write a love poem to your wife, Missy, it can be about fishing bait and, and saucy swimmers. That's what it's called. Sometimes if you give word pictures to a guy, it helps. 
we, we, I'm going to leave that one completely yeah. alone. I, I'm not going to disagree with it, however. We're yeah, going to the New Testament. Thank you, Emily. Yes, let's, let's go. What's different about 1 Timothy compared to all the other New Testament letters we've covered so far in our whole Holy Bible in a year readings? Jamie. Yeah. Okay. This is so fun. We are turning the corner in the New Testament and the Paul letters away from the letters that are just addressed towards churches that were um, maybe going through conflict or experiencing something. And this is uh, now entering the part of the New Testament called the pastoral letters, where Mm. Paul is just writing to pastors. This is like a personal letter to a pastor or to a church planter who has maybe come across some specific circumstances. And so we actually see a lot about Timothy all over the New Testament. It's not just in these letters. We see Timothy in Acts and in other letters that Paul is uh, writing. And so Timothy, there's some things that we know about Timothy that I just think are really interesting. So uh, he's the son of a Gentile man and a Jewish woman. Paul recruited Timothy on his second missionary journey and then took him on his third missionary journey with him, which is really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Timothy was most likely with Paul in the winter where Paul wrote Romans from the city of Corinth, which is Mm -hmm. just kind of fun and fascinating to think about Paul sitting and maybe having some theological chats with Timothy, his trusted companion, as he's writing one of the greatest theological treatises of all time. He references Timothy in one of his letters and says, I have no one else like Timothy. Mm-hmm. Like Timothy was just, he calls him like his son. Mm-hmm. So they have a really close relationship, which makes it even maybe weirder that we're reading a letter <laughs> of yeah. Paul to Timothy, but you just really get to see the personal aspect of Paul taking Timothy under his wing and giving him all of his wisdom. So mm-hmm. I think that's really a fascinating thing to remember as we're reading through these next few letters. It is. And since it's a pastoral letter, the tone changes just a little bit. I mean, you mentioned that, Jamie, that this isn't a letter to a whole church. It's a letter to Timothy. It's a letter to this young pastor that Paul is mentoring, this young church leader. The word pastor isn't going to be used a whole lot back in this time, but that's how we would see it today. Uh, So as it's written to him, it provides a holistic kind of view of what church, not just church leadership, but what the church is supposed to be and, and what it's supposed to look like and what it is we're supposed to strive for, which ultimately leads to our next question, which is, you know, what is Paul's point? Yeah. What's the whole point of Paul's teaching? Who's missing it? And what's in Paul's purpose statement for us? Yeah. So Paul's just um, opening up in his letter to Timothy to, to share about some of the concerns that are taking place in this church, this congregation in Ephesus, but also to help Paul to step into this with the pastor's heart, like yeah. lead with love. Mm-hmm. Be sincere in it. Be compassionate. Uh, allow for Christ to be at the center of your all your teaching. Don't don't ruminate or, or, or go off of kind of what you think kind of things, but what does the Scripture say? What do you know about Christ, and how does that speak into um, your ministry to this congregation? And so, uh, you know, it's a reminder of what service looks like. It means caring for your neighbor, laying down your life like Christ did, um, and encouraging Timothy to model um, all of those things in, a, in a, a sincere way so that people truly know how to, one, view you and trust you as a leader publicly, but then also um, you're, you're living out what Christ has done for you. And, and I think that's, that's at the heart of uh, the point of that for, for Paul um, being instructing Timothy in the ways of leadership. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well said, Pat. As Paul writes this to Timothy, um, it shows us something else. It reveals something else, that there's, there's relationships amongst church leaders. There's relationships amongst, amongst members of a church, if it's going to be healthy. Paul, Paul is Paul. I mean, he, he's the one we all know. Uh, famous evangelist, missionary uh, person God chose to write most of the New Testament through. That's that's quite lofty praise, but to Paul's credit, he stays humble in the midst of that and realizes, yeah, but I can't do this alone. I need Timothy. I need Barnabas. I need Peter. I, we, we need the whole crew. I need Lydia. I need Phoebe. I, I, need, I need the whole church. We're, we're in this relationally. But part of relationships isn't just being buddies and pals and friends. Part of it is holding each other accountable Mm -hmm. and saying for the sake of what God is seeking to do through this body, through this community, through this church, we need to hold each other accountable. We need to tell each other, speak a truth in love, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. We, We need to say that. And so... Paul is is going to name names even and saying, hey, there's two people here who weren't doing it the right way. Pat, as you said, 
And I'm just going to paraphrase, but Paul's saying to Timothy, here's a corrective that'll keep you focused on the right things. Focus on those things that are important. Focus on Jesus. Focus on the cross. Focus. Well, here's, here's the actual literal words. The purpose of my instruction, this is verse 5 of 1 Timothy 1. Paul writes to Timothy, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. But some people have missed this whole point. They've turned away from these things and spend their time in meaningless discussions that lead to divisions and arguments and controversies. And that theme is going to keep popping up throughout the rest of 1 Timothy is because this is he's writing about the church in Ephesus. Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to correct their false teaching. You have to hold them accountable, otherwise the church derails and it becomes this thing that isn't Christ-centered anymore. Now it could be pastor-centered, or it could be whatever the opinion of the congregational base is, or it's based on votes of the congregation. That's what we're all about. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It has to be about Christ. It has to be centered in him, and that leads to a pure heart. That leads to a clear conscience. So let's purify the church, Paul's saying, in Ephesus that has gone off the rails, and let's clarify God's word for them, clear clear minds, pure hearts. Purity doesn't mean you don't do anything wrong. Purity means you clear up the misunderstandings, you clear up the misperceptions that are derailing you and everybody else in your congregation. Mm. I love this. It's, it's just a, boy, is it a reminder to stay humble as church leaders, to, hold, to love each other, to do this as a team, and also to hold each other accountable and say, because we love this church and what God's doing here, we can't just make up our own religion. We don't just get, we don't just get to do what we want to do. Well, and in a culture that's focused about I, uh, <laughs> it challenges us to think about the other. And 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 so Paul is reminding Timothy, you're serving others. The church is serving others. Amen. It's not about a holy huddle for those that are coming to your church. Right. Mm. Right. Yep. That's good. There's false teaching on food. There's false teaching on marriage. There's false teaching on all these things. And Paul saying, Timothy, you can't stand for that. Mm. What does Paul urge Timothy to pray for, and how do those prayers reveal the point and purpose of the Christian life? Yeah, I love this uh, because Paul doesn't mince words again, and he's reminding Timothy uh, about how it is that uh, as a Christian that we are to kind of think about not only ourselves, but others. And so he starts off with just pray for those that are in authority. He talks about as kings. Today, we'd say those that are maybe elected officials or those that are in power or hold um, seats on school boards and things like that. Paul's saying, hey, start with your daily activity of praying, bending your knee, humbling yourself, and lifting up those that are in places of service. Um, And I think that's a powerful thing. He's also saying, hey, pray for peace. Hey, this world has a lot of conflict in it. This, Mm -hmm. This world has a lot of pain in it. Um, people move in sin. Let's pray for their peace. Let's pray for them to correct their minds, their thinking, uh, consider others uh, better than themselves. And Paul starts uh, just listing out that. So it's it's talking about living into a better life, uh, how we respect one another, how we uh, show respect to people's property, uh, to the laws that are in place in a in a country or in a community, um, and and to do that with a holiness uh, and a reverence for God because of what He's first done for you through Christ as Lord. Paul's mm-hmm. going to hit that back and go yes. back and forth. You can't you can't live into the purity the holiness uh, without understanding where those gifts have come from, and that's through Christ, the risen Lord, who's overcome death uh, for you, and salvation is yours. So live into that. Be different. Stand apart. Um, don't don't be uh, someone who can, um, uh, you know, not stand in front of a community and uh, not be blameless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. That The prayer that Paul is encouraging Timothy and all church leaders to do also reveals and leads to mission. So look at, I, I love this. This is one of, I, I just think it's so, well, let's get back to the question before. It's purifying and clarifying. Mm-hmm. As a church leader, we're all church leaders, all four of us sitting at this table. A lot of people listening are church leaders. Everybody listening is called to be a part of the church and to find your gifts and, and probably to serve and to lead. And we'll get into that in more specificity as we go, because Paul gets into that in more specificity. But look at the movement of Paul. Pray this way, as you said, Pat, for leaders, for kings and all who are in authority. This is verse 2 of chapter 2. So that we can live in peace, as you said, Pat. We can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. There's all sorts of things that come there. One is Paul isn't saying pray for these governing leaders 
for some sort of political edge or angle. Mm -hmm. He's saying pray for them because that's what Christians do. Mm -hmm. We pray and we love our enemies too. That doesn't mean we have to agree with them. That doesn't mean we have to endorse them or say what they're doing is okay. But we pray for them as people. We pray for them as human beings, and we also pray that God will get a hold of them so that our world, our nations, our, our states, our counties, our cities will be more peace-filled, will, will be more full. That's one thing. But then he goes on, and it gets even better. The other thing about this is if we're praying for them because those things can get in the way of what we're really supposed to be about as the church. He says in verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior. Verse 4 is one of my favorites. Who wants everyone to be saved mm. and to understand the truth? Wow. Did Paul, does the Bible just tell us that God wants everyone to be saved, that he isn't some ruthless judge up in heaven who's saying, well, these are the people that I like and these are the people I don't. These people are going to go to heaven and these people are going to go to hell. It is God's will. It is God's desire in the Greek, his passion that everyone would be saved. And he's calling us. And so Paul's reminding Timothy, he's calling you, pastor, he's calling you church leaders, he's calling you to make sure you keep your eye on the ball. The point is, don't get in the way, purify, clarify, peace, those key words keep coming up, Mm -hmm. because the goal is salvation for all. The goal is that heaven will be more crowded. The goal is not, hey, we don't like these governing leaders, we like these better, that's what the church should be all about. Paul doesn't go there at all. He says... Pray for them so that'll give you peace and that'll give our world peace so that we can do what we're supposed to do, which is even more eternally important. Yeah, and I love verse 8, which is the prayer. I want people everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or, other words, arguing, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to prove you're right Right. uh, instead of like just allowing for God to work through um, our love for one another and for working towards a common desire, which is His love. Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but when I pray for somebody that I disagree with, my heart usually becomes more empathetic. A little softer. Yes, a little softer. I uh, begin to see things that are going on in their life, maybe that I didn't realize before. It becomes less agenda-driven and more love-driven. And I think that's what Paul and Timothy know here, right? Yeah, that's the piece, right? Yes. Jesus didn't politely suggest, hey, here's an idea. Here's a tip for (laughs) for a little better life. You know, I, I get so annoyed. When when preachers and teachers of the word say, here's some tips, you know, to, to have a little stress-free life, it's so much deeper than that. Jesus doesn't politely suggest. He commands, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, it, it, don't pray that they get zapped by lightning. Pray that God actually blesses them. Because it's, it, one, it can bless them. But two, and maybe two is more important than one, it'll change your heart. Mm-hmm. It'll, it'll get you in a purified, clarified lane. Because so much of the noise in our world is pulling us out of those lanes into, hey, you know, what it's really all about is controversy. And Paul, uh, Pat, you, you lifted up that verse. Free from anger and controversy is what Paul's saying the church should be focused on mm-hmm. for the sake of mission, for yeah. the sake of doing something eternally more important, and that's leading people to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and Paul, will later in 2 Timothy, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, he talks about not having a spirit of timidity or holding back, right. but go in power, yeah. uh, go in love, and go with like your full mind, like yeah. you, with, you know, be of sound mind or self-discipline, but... So he's not saying you have to you have to do this without any gloves on, but right. also do it out of the right motivation. Exactly. Well, that's great. That's great. Well said. How can we make sense of Paul's encouragement for women to be submissive to men? <laughs> this is a big one. <laughs> Wait, it says what? No. So <laughs> surprise. <laughs> First Timothy chapter two, and we've been getting a lot of questions on this for for good reason. Uh, let's jump right into it. Some read this, and Paul's pretty blunt. He's saying, "Hey, women." Don't speak in church. Let's back up a little bit. This is the same Paul who appointed a woman named Phoebe, a woman named Junia, a woman named Priscilla, a woman named Lydia, and others to lead and to be really to serve the same role he's calling Timothy to serve, to pastor, to to be the leader of a church in a particular place where Paul probably helped started as a missionary. So is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth where he says, you know, if the temperature's right, I'll just say, hey, women in these places can be the leaders and, and, and the pastors and the overseers. But uh, over here, where there's a little more, maybe there's some issues, 
then uh, they can't, and that means nobody can, which is the way it so often gets misinterpreted. There are three classic ways to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. One is to say that Paul is saying women ought not to teach and they ought not to lead, period, anywhere, universal law. Uh, that doesn't hold water because he said Priscilla, Phoebe, uh, Junia, Lydia, on and on and on. You are leaders in the churches that Christ has started through me, and he appoints them. So Paul doesn't do that anywhere else. He doesn't contradict himself like that. So a serious Bible reader, let's just take the Bible for what it says, but not just in these verses. Let's, let's line these verses up with the rest of the same author, Paul's, writing about women and leadership in church. And Paul is doing some radical things. So the first view is women shouldn't teach or, or lead in a church, and then they'll proof text, meaning I'll pull a verse out of... First Timothy 2, and I'll say, see, Paul said you shouldn't do this, and so therefore that's it. But you've got to read the rest of the story. The second view is to say, well, if you read on a little bit, it kind of looks like if these women are trained to be teachers, they can teach, and they can preach, and they can publicly proclaim, but they can't lead. Because uh, Paul's still kind of making it clear that, that they're really messing things up in the church in Ephesus. Third thing is that Paul is writing this for the church in Ephesus. And the leader of that church in Ephesus right now is Timothy, and he's advising Timothy and counseling Timothy. That's actually the context into which this letter is written. He's saying, Timothy, you've got an issue with women in Ephesus. They're gossiping. They're showing up wearing fancy clothes and making other women feel inferior who can't afford those clothes. They're um, being snooty. They're spreading false teaching from their husbands and others that that is the stuff I'm writing about all throughout this letter that I don't want. And Paul is identifying. He's saying a big, a big part of the problem is these women in the church in Ephesus. They should be silent. They shouldn't teach. They shouldn't lead. They shouldn't be allowed. I, I'm telling you, that's not going to happen in the church in Ephesus. That's the only biblical explanation that holds true all throughout all of the Pauline letters. It's the only... I'm not saying pretend Paul didn't say this. I'm saying let's say he... Not just let's say... Let's just acknowledge he absolutely said this. Should the women in the church in Ephesus be quiet? Yes. Should the men, he's also saying, be quiet, who are teaching this false stuff? Yes, he absolutely is saying that. The verse right before, it's shorter, but he's hitting that too, saying the the men who are doing this false teaching should zip the lip. But so should these women who are doing all these things that are distracting the church from mission and what we're supposed to be about. That needs to be applied faithfully and not in some sort of willy-nilly proof-texting way where we just pull it out, slap it on the 21st century church and say, therefore, uh, Jamie, gee, we didn't know, I guess now, or Emily, we didn't know. You guys can't be leaders in the church anymore. Where would this church be if you guys weren't leaders? Mm -hmm. The Spirit has gifted you. You have been called. Uh, You certainly qualify, and you qualify for Paul. One more thing, because I'm on a roll, <laughs> and, and that's it. this, is that I get passionate about this because there's so much pushback mm-hmm. on this, and it's just too bad. We are Women lead at hope because they're called and because the Bible calls them to it, too. Yeah, you just can't read the New Testament holistically and come to any other conclusion. But as we read through this, there's also this. Paul is, for all he gets criticism for, for saying his view on women is really old-fashioned, Well, he's a first century Jewish man. And compared to what everybody else was saying in first century Jewish culture, Paul is radical. He is way out on an edge. And people who are reading this for the first time would be like, "Uh, Paul's too crazy for me. he's, He's just way too wide open to women in leadership. You know who else was really way wide open to women in leadership as we read the New Testament? Jesus. Uh, that he continually would would save space for conversations with women, life-changing conversations. The woman at the well comes to mind, women who were his disciples and followed him. Jesus and Paul in the New Testament is radically um, in, in favor of calling men and women to see this as a spirit-gifting thing and not as a, well, men get to do this and women get to do that. That was good. That was so good. And it's always kind of nice to hear a guy talk about it and not just the gals fighting <laughs> got, for themselves. I so, got your back. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I have uh, a little bit of some Greek word nerd things. Oh, go. That's even better. But I also just have a fun story to share about all that. One time, some friends, uh, two separately, uh, good friends of mine who were both gals, set me up on a date with a guy that they both mutually knew. And they were like, Jamie, you just really need to go out on a date with this guy. They'd been talking about it for literally years. And I was like, oh, I don't care. Whatever, whatever, make it happen. I don't care. I literally don't care. We finally go on this date. And the date was 
fine, but there was something off the entire time. You could just feel it. I could just feel it. And so dessert came and I looked at him and I go, how do you feel about women in leadership? And he blushed. In the church. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I don't even know if oh, it was in the just church in or leadership just in general. In general. Okay. Yeah. And he said, well, I do think your job is unbiblical. And so then mm. we just had a nice little talk about it. Bless and his heart. Bless <laughs> And I said, you know, it's really fascinating. I said a lot of things and I don't remember all of them. <laughs> I kept my cool. I was really proud of myself. But one of them Way was, go, how sister. fascinating is it that it might say that one thing in scripture and then also scripture empowers women to lead. And how, mm. how is it that I feel called and equipped and empowered to lead faithfully? And that's yeah. encouraged by other people who are sometimes even more faithful than I am. Mm. How is this contradictory? I don't, I don't know how that all holds up. So yeah, mm. after 20 years of ministry, I'm thanking God for my sisters in Christ who help Amen. make things look more beautiful, show great hospitality, um, are, are, are preachers of the word that bring yeah. a whole different lens um, that I couldn't, I couldn't necessarily see without, without their help. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've never understood um, how the church can try to stop um, that that voice or that influence or that gifting um, when we're talking about fifty percent of the church. Yeah. So a couple quick uh, Greek things, if we have a moment or two, there's two different times in this short passage where Paul uses the word modesty. And I think it's really important to look at what Paul was actually referring to. The first one is you have to, we already, we already talked about prayer. We already talked about Paul's instructions for prayer. This first section in first Timothy two is just a continuation in Paul talking about prayer. So in, in chapter two, verses one through seven, he's talking about intercession and prayer and leading a quiet life. And then in verse eight, here's how men should pray. And then also women who are involved in church life, they should not be doing the the shaming of other women thing. You have to take all of this in context. This isn't just a thing you can prove text. So the modesty part here, the first word that he uses, uh, that word is used one other time in the New Testament, and it's not gendered. It's just a word for awe and reverence and how we approach God. It's used in Hebrews. And then the second time that it's used in this passage about modesty, it's uh, that same word is used three places in the New Testament, and the word is sophrosune. It's interesting. The other places that this Greek word is used, sophrosune, in relationship to Paul, Paul uses it on trial before Festus, and he says, I am not insane, most magnificent and excellent Festus. I'm saying the modesty. He's saying, I'm saying the sober truth. I'm saying what is what is accurate, what is of sound mind. And then uh, Paul uses this word modesty to his letter to Titus, another church leader that we'll get to soon. And he says, young men need to use this word modesty. Same word. Yep. But there it's translated self-control, being sober and being in right mind. So then we get to women here in First Timothy. Mm-hmm. That same word that Paul has used as being of sound mind for young men is translated as, uh, you know, being sober, being wise. Could it actually be that it's more a reflection of the translators who translate it into English and of their course. context and their time? Yeah. So uh, when Paul says... Women, I need you to be self-resune. He's saying, I need you to be of sound mind. Mm-hmm. I need you to 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 be thinking about all people and context and all these things. To being to be to be using wisdom and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. there's so much more here. I could talk about it for forever. We we could, and it's. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a deep dive, and and mm-hmm. I love those things. They remind us. Look, I'm a big fan of English translations of the Bible. All of them are beneficial in some way or another, almost all of them. Some of them are just completely off. But for the most part, they're all wonderful uh, for different reasons and in different ways. But that doesn't mean the Bible, God's Word, is not to be like questioned. we, We can trust that. But sometimes when we interpret from the original text into our English or any other language, we might miss a beat or two. And we just have to acknowledge that, that that doesn't diminish the authority of Scripture. It's just more honest. And it says, that's why it's good to have teachers. That's why it's good to have people who can study the Greek like you can, who are seminary graduates like you are, Jamie, who can who have been trained and, and taught how to do this, which Paul is saying to Timothy is really important too. He's, he's still, you know, Paul ultimately is a guy of grace. He's still ultimately holding out hope for these women saying, maybe if you teach them. Maybe if you teach them what God's word really says, instead of what it's been interpreted to say in that church in Ephesus at this time, not only can we save the church in Ephesus, but we can also 
call that they can turn around because Paul knows if God can use someone like me who was breathing threats against Christians and persecuting them more than anybody else, and he can turn me around, he could certainly turn these men and women in Ephesus who are involved in this false teaching. Last word on this for now, Acts chapter 2, which we read several uh, weeks, if not months ago, as we read through the whole Holy Bible together, says, in the last days, this is the birthday of the church, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, I'll pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, not just sons. And then it goes on next verse, in those days, I'll pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. The women are teaching from day one on the birthday of the church, according to God's word. Let's just let God's word be God's word on this. And if it challenges you, we look, we understand the traditions and the pieties, and we understand there, there are people who are going to disagree on these things. But I, I'm, I'm just kind of done with the whole thing of, oh, well, women lead in your church just because you want them to, or because you're trying yeah. to be innovative, or you're trying to be worldly. You know, baloney. That, that is just not the word. That is not why. It's because we truly believe when you read through Scripture that there's no other place to land but that third classic view, which is Paul is saying women in this particular context can't teach because they're distracting the church and they're leading them into heresies. What can we learn from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 about the prerequisites for a church leader and a deacon? This one gets misapplied too. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a roll today. <laughs> Do you want to kick this one off? You go. Okay, then you can clean up, I, kick up. I, I, I won't clean up. I'll just add too. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We have an institutionalized church here in the United States with a lot of different roles, but those were not necessarily the same roles that existed in the first century as the church was really getting going, and so. Uh, but that aside, there are still requirements for what it looks like to be a leader. To what it looks like to to be someone who, as Timothy says, or as Paul says to Timothy, is above reproach, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of words that uh, that Paul uses here. And I just took a look at some of the the Greek words, right? Like to be temperate, he means to just be sober, to be watchful, and not just sober in terms of wine, but to be of sober mind, to be calm, cool, and collected, to be dispassionate. Oh, man, we could talk about church leaders being dispassionate. It's okay to be passionate about some things, but to keep, uh, you know, like as our core value is around hope, Jesus's life and everything else's details, let's let's keep things in their correct order. So I think about with this list that people can read about in Timothy, think of the good bosses that you've had in your life. And then think about the bosses that you had a really hard time with. the thing that probably was most in common with the good bosses that we had is that they were really kind, that they were really empathetic people, that they looked out not only for their interests, but for the interests of other people. You know, there's the the phrase, people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad bosses. What Paul is saying to Timothy here is like, Hey, if to be a good boss here, here's the kind of person and the qualifications that we're looking for. So those are some of the things that stood out to me when I was reading about it. Yeah, it matters. It matters who leads in a church and churches should take that uh, seriously. And we, we do here. I know most churches do on some level or another. Um, it's interesting to dive, you know, you mentioned the Greek on the question before, Jamie. It's interesting to look at the Greek here. So there is a little bit of a distinction, and I think it's important. And there's a little bit of a different list. There, there's some things that these two lists have in common, because Paul says when it comes to who can be um, a church leader, that's an unfortunate English translation. Mm-hmm. Because the way that gets applied then is we say, well, to be a church leader on any level whatsoever in a church, according to the Bible, you have to be able to check all these boxes. You have to follow this whole list. But actually what it says in the first part is if, it's, if someone aspires, uh, either your translation could say a church leader, an elder, uh, something else, the Greek word is actually episcopus, which means bishop, which means the top leader of mm-hmm. a whole church. It really is an individual, not a whole team of people. Mm-hmm. It's probably one person. Uh, and so Paul's saying this to Timothy. Why? Well, you're the bishop right now, Timothy. You're the over... Uh, another way to put it is overseer, or I like this. A literal translation of Episcopus is superintendent. Mm-hmm. So think of a school system. Mm-hmm. There's one. So this person has a special list. Mm-hmm. Th- this person... 
in addition to all the other things, I, 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 <laughs> I proofed it out. I compared lists. And here's the things that are distinctive for the superintendent of a church, the, the, the top leader. It needs to be, uh, you need to be above reproach, live wisely, good reputation, because when you lose your reputation, mm-hmm. you've lost your ability to lead as the superintendent. Uh, it, it, whether it's fair or not, it's time to step aside. Um, you enjoy guests in your home, which is, you know, pretty specific. Uh, you're able to teach. You have to be a communicator who can effectively connect those dots. Can't be violent. Can't be, need to be gentle. Shouldn't be a quarreler. Wow. Now, now put that mirror up for a lot of the people who get on TikTok and say, here's my latest sermon, and it's really angry at, at all, and it's controversial, and it's all the things Paul says the church shouldn't be here in his letter to First Timothy. Uh, and should not only manage family well, but have children who respect him. It's him here in Paul's letter because it's first century. And then he says, and it shouldn't be a new believer, which is fascinating because mm-hmm. Paul's a new believer, uh, relatively new. Now, by now, he's been a believer probably for years and years and years. But when he first started out, I think yeah. he realized I wasn't ready in every way yet. The next word, the next like paragraph down, depending on how your English translation looks, is to say... And then there are deacons. In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. And if we aren't careful, we just merge all these lists together, but they're not the same. And deacon doesn't mean superintendent. It doesn't even really mean church leader. It means servant. It means the waiter. It means the person who brings you the food. It means the person who serves. It means the person maybe who administrates, who, who supports the, and, and allows the church to be able to function in a healthy way. So when it comes to requirements for what does a person have to be able to do in order to to do different roles in a church? Well, for the superintendent or the overseer or the bishop, it's it's one level, or the senior pastor, I would probably mm-hmm. apply here, me, mm-hmm. in this particular time and place, that I've got a tougher list, mm-hmm. and that's the way it should be. Uh, and then for others, we can kind of try to figure it out in between, but we don't really have a biblical leg to stand on there. And so I would hope we would err on the side of grace for people who want to serve, for people who want to participate, for people who want to sing in the choir and, and play guitar in the band and usher and greet and do all those things uh, and be a hall monitor, you know, for the, for the yeah. kids ministry, yeah. just have faith, commit to the faith, um, be, be somebody who's maturing in your faith, who's committed to the cause. Yep. And that's it. Mm. So we might need to relook at our lists mm-hmm. if we're going to take the Bible seriously, and I think that's important to do. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, how might Paul's words of wisdom for Timothy on dealing with deceptive teachers help faithful Christians today? You know, we've already talked a little bit about it, and I uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about is the TikTok pastor. <laughs> yeah. You know, just a, an easy soundbite that can that can soar. And I, I'm not here to knock any of that. I do think it goes back to our previous lists, bless, right? Of bless what we're their just, hearts. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, we're starting a new series at Revive, our young adult ministry this week. That is about half truths and one-liners and Ooh, Christianese. Yes. Versus God's word. And the image on it is of a jackalope. And a jackalope obviously <laughs> is not a real animal. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, but it's, it's taking the horns of, uh, or the antlers of a deer and putting them on a rabbit. And that so often happens when you take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and smush it together. And Paul's just saying, come back to scripture, come back to grace, come back to Jesus Christ. There's no special knowledge beyond what we have that you can add on and make somehow God's word be a little sexier, a little spicier, saucier with new teaching. It's just at the core, the things that we already know. Mm-hmm. It's about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And I, I'd love to hear what you guys have to say as well, but those are some of the things I think of when I see what Paul's writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, It's just a word of caution, right? Just, it is. Just be aware. Uh, be mindful that people are going to say things to try to get your attention and try to you know, steer you away from sometimes the main things. And that's really a, a reflection of their brokenness. Um, and Timothy, you know, we, we learned from Luke in Acts 16 that Timothy was an effective teacher. He was mm-hmm. an effective preacher, but he could have also kind of fallen into some of the culture and fads too of trying to, you know, be more than what he was supposed to be. The Bible doesn't say that, but Timothy's just trying to, again, put up some guard posts and say, just be who you are. You know the truth. 
and be okay in that. Um, don't try to make it anything more than than what it is. And at the very least, Paul is giving him preventive maintenance. Right. Mm-hmm. If Timothy hasn't wandered, and like you say, there's no reason to think that he has, Paul's just saying, hey, as you move forward in the future, don't go here. And Paul specifically is saying to the church in Ephesus, to, saying to Timothy about the church in Ephesus, what they're saying about marriage, you shouldn't get married anymore. And what they're saying about food, there's certain foods you shouldn't eat. They're misapplying the law. They're misunderstanding the purpose of the law. They're too law focused. And Christians can go there still today where we lose our balance between law and gospel. And we say, really, the whole point of Christianity is say, do this, don't do that. When actually the bigger point of Christianity, let's go back to, to Paul's words to Timothy, purify, clarify, keep the faith, uh, filled hearts filled with love. That's what we should have for the world around us and also living in grace. And so Paul's saying, you want to get married? Get married. You want to eat that meal? You know, eat the meal. It, it, you, you're free in Christ. Stop acting like you're not. Stop acting like Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead to fulfill the law. Yeah, and you see that as Paul goes on to explain more of of how to care for those in your congregations, whether it's the mm-hmm. widow, um, or you know, and and trying to help break down you know ways for um, the congregation that might be taking advantage of the congregation. Now, these are some certain guideposts to help help build some uh, structure, but also to keep you from falling into ditches and, and brokenness. Um, yeah. So I, I, I just, I love that Paul could be a mentor for Timothy. Mm-hmm. And I, right. I love the fact that Timothy had a mentor in Paul. Mm-hmm. It just, it's a, it's a powerful thing. That's good. That leads us right into our next question. What do you want our podcast listeners to take note of as they read how a church family should serve and care for one another in First Timothy 5? There's an important part of the church's mission, which is to take care of people who are hurting. And in this case, Paul gets specific about widows, because in that community, that was an issue. Here again, he cautions, don't let the women who are causing the unrest in the church in Ephesus, you know, uh, cut in line, basically. And, and, And they have the money already. They don't need the help. They don't need the church's charity. And they're pushing back the people who need it. And, you know, Paul's no love lost right now uh, for these folks. And so he's saying, let's, let's turn that line back around and, and get the people who need it the most up to the front of the line. And the people who don't need it um, don't need to even be in the line at all. Uh, and he's saying, when it comes to church family matters, let's, let's rely on grace and let's live knowing that even if people don't notice the good that we're doing, that one day it'll be revealed. I find that fascinating, Paul's words here, and kind of important for us to hear. Even if, even if we don't get credit for the stuff we're doing as Christians or as, a, as churches, we are. God sees it all. Yep. And that also means God sees the other stuff too. God sees the, the bad motives, the sinfulness, the, the selfishness, the pride, the ego. And Tim, Paul's reminding Timothy, God knows, God sees. Um, you're going to get all the credit you deserve for these mm-hmm. things in heaven uh, when it's all said and done, and or it'll be revealed, which is just a real sobering reminder. I don't get away with anything. Mm-hmm. None of us do. Mm-hmm. It will all, in the kingdom to come, which is way longer than this world, it all gets revealed. So maybe we should start living that way now, knowing, hey, if my motives aren't good, that people are going to see that someday. Uh, sleeping well at night, I think, has a lot to do with this too. Mm-hmm. Being able to say, "Well, I tried, not never perfectly. We're all sinners in need of a savior, but I tried the best I could with my heart in the right place to do the right thing based on what I knew at the yeah. time." Yeah, and that's a good way to live. Yeah. Last question: What's wrong with loving money and living for wealth, according to First Timothy six? And what's a better and more rewarding goal for us to strive for in life? Yeah, this is, I don't think Paul has anything negative to say about money, but he does put it in the context of verse six of, of that of that verse. He says, yet true godliness with contentment is great wealth. Mm-hmm. And and so for Paul, it's going back to the cross. What, did, what does the cross stand for? It means salvation. It means that your sins have been taken care of. You're getting more than you ever deserve. It, yeah. And the fact that you're going to overcome death because of what Christ has done. So in view of that, be content. Uh, don't strive after what, you know, again, another way of thinking about this is in our second Thessalonians from last week. Uh, the, the Thessalonians were focused on 
the second coming of Jesus, and they were so focused that they were forgetting their neighbor. They were forgetting about how to live into the day, realizing that they had received everything. They were looking for, they didn't want to miss Jesus coming back. You're not going to miss him. But uh, where do you put your true treasure? Uh, And Paul's just warning you to not put your hope in things that you can't that aren't going to go with you. And he says this in verse 7, after all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave Mm -hmm. it. So if you have enough food and clothing, let's be content. And so Paul is just saying, hey, where's your motivation? Where's your hope? If you're going to be hoping for your child to be a D1 athlete, you're, you you might be disappointed. Um, if you're hoping to live in that four-bedroom you know, picket fence house, you, at some point that could disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Paul's just reminding uh, Timothy, but also for Timothy to remind the church that we need to be focused on the cross. Put your hope in well-placed things, uh, because some of the things that you are living for here on earth as motivation um, may not be the right motivators. Yeah, that's live, good. Live for eternal things. Don't mm-hmm. just, you know, don't don't live for the temporal. That's so well said. It, Paul's language here, too, doesn't need a whole lot more interpretation than what you just said. It's I just encourage people to read it again, because we live in a world that is a little money-obsessed, or a lot money obsessed, depending on on where we're at on that spectrum. Very few of us are like, oh, who cares at all um, in our culture. Very few cultures, very few pockets of Americana are at a place where like money doesn't matter. And you know, in a children's sermon, you know that's the answer. But the way we live says something different, um, and the things that we get most passionate about say something different. But Paul's words are just so blatant; doesn't hurt to hear him again. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Paul's not anti-money; he's anti-ruin and destruction. And he's saying when you fall in love with this money, in the pursuit of money, it'll never be enough, mm-hmm. as you were saying, Pat. It, Paul's balanced here too. He says back in chapter 5, verse 17, the episcopates, the, the church leaders, and he would go on to say the deacons too, I'm sure, who do their work well should be respected and paid well. So we don't have to be embarrassed as, as church staff in saying church staff should be paid fairly and equitably, but it gets embarrassing. And we'll get back to TikTok pastors one more time when they get on and say, here's my private jet. And I have the biggest private jet of any preacher in America. There's actually a guy who I think I'm quoting almost word for word uh, in a sermon recently said, I have, the, I have the best and the fastest and the biggest private jet of any preacher in America, this, this guy mm-hmm. said, and bless his heart. But what Paul would say to him is, you're living for the wrong God. You're, you're, you're going to fall into ruin and destruction because your God is your airplane or your mansion or your whatever it might be. Instead of living, let me clarify, let me purify again, Paul says, let me get you back to love. Let me get you back to Jesus. Let me get you back to the things that will actually give you life and life to the full. And it isn't the stuff the world says is going to do it. And it, you know, preachers aren't immune from it either. Uh, and, and church workers and neither are any of you who are listening. So take Paul's words to heart. Take God's word to, words to heart. This is a beautiful holistic view of what the church is supposed to be. We covered a lot of ground here today. We sure did. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Jamie. Emily, as always, thank you so much for keeping us on track and for your insights as well. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. Uh, We will see you next week on the podcast and this weekend. Uh, come and worship at any of our campuses or locations. And the young adults at Revive on Thursdays at 7. All right, we'll see you next week. God loves you, so do we. Thanks for joining us today. Please make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite platform and we'll see you next time. Hey!